again, welcome. Glad you're here. And uh, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. As Jake said, this is the first Sunday of Advent. And we're going to get back into the Old Testament a little bit after being in the New Testament all fall. We're going to be in chapter 11 beginning in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin there. Let me say one quick thing, though, before we start to head toward the passage. Um, when you have a church, when you, well, really, in some ways this is true of all organizations, but just for our purposes, let's say when you have a church. By the way, does anyone have any sunglasses on them? Uh, <laughs> just kidding. But uh, that, that may be the brightest I've ever experienced while we've, while we've been here. But, uh, no, but, you know, when you have an organization, there can be this sort of uh, diffused sense of responsibility. And here's why I say that. I, I just think every once in a while we have to look up and say... If you think to yourself something like, hey, wow, we're going to have two lessons and carol services. You know, one will be here for people that works out better for, one's at the Croc Center, and that's an interesting opportunity. And kind of thinking, I'm sure someone will invite others. Uh, Let's not farm things out to the third person. Let's think in terms of first person. Uh, Who might I invite? Whom might I invite? Um, If you look around and see someone you don't know, and maybe you're thinking, I'm sure someone will speak to them before they get out the door. Let's not do that. Um, just every once in a while, I think we have to recalibrate and say, let's be the people that speak to others. Let's even be the people that grab someone and uh, take them home for lunch after worship. So um, I just want to throw that out to you. We do hope you'll invite folks to the lessons and carol service. There's the Friday night one. There's the Sunday night one. As Jake said, this is not just filler. It's not just a cool holiday thing to do. Um, This is a, a, quote, non-threatening way for people to hear the scriptures read, Old and New Testament, to hear songs that we've really tried to be careful that dovetail with the the scriptures that go before them, just to hear the gospel of why God sent his son. So um, I hope we'll include others on that. Now, Isaiah chapter 11. Before we read this Old Testament passage, I want you to think about something from the New Testament. If there was anyone who was confident of the arrival of the Messiah, it was John the Baptist. No one was more confident, when you read the Gospels, that the Messiah had come, that it was Jesus, than John the Baptist. Now, with that said, when you read ahead in the Gospels, after he's prepared the way and he's baptizing and he's preaching, and then Jesus begins his ministry, there's this scene that some of the gospel writers record where John the Baptist is in in prison. So he's not out in the wilderness anymore. He's in prison. And so he can't get to Jesus. And he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. And the question is, are you really the one? Or have we made a mistake? And what's amazing is that Jesus does not scold him. He doesn't send a scolding message back he actually commends John the Baptist to everyone who's listening. He says, John the Baptist is the greatest of all the prophets. That's an amazing claim. We're about to read Isaiah. Isaiah was a big figure in the history of Israel. John the Baptist is a greater prophet than Isaiah. John the Baptist is a greater prophet than Elijah. He's the greatest prophet we've ever had. So you've got the most confident man of the arrival of the Messiah... And the Messiah says he's the greatest prophet who's ever lived. And he's sitting in the prison cell going, are you really the Messiah or not? In other words, he's really, really confused. 
Now, how, about, how can someone that confirmed and that right be that confused as to say, did we get this wrong? And here's the thing. You and I, as we come to this passage, we have an advantage that John the Baptist didn't have, and, and that's this. And, and this is not because we're smarter. It's just because we get the advantage of having the New Testament. And it's this. When John the Baptist read these prophecies of what the Messiah would do and what would happen when he came, what he thought was what any of us would think, and that is that he arrives once. And so he'd read something. Here's what's going to happen when the Messiah shows up, and he would think there's one arrival. When the Messiah comes, all those things happen. And the advantage that you and I have is that we know something he didn't know. The Messiah doesn't just arrive once. The Messiah arrives twice. And here's why this is so important before we read the passage. Um, Our callings are very different than John the Baptist, but there's something that can happen to us that's very similar to him. And that is that we think that Jesus is going to do something. And we have this mental picture of how it will be when Jesus does this thing for us. And then our real lives come at us. And we're surrounded by our disappointments. It may not be a prison cell, but we're surrounded by our disappointments. And we find ourselves kind of asking the same question, have I been wrong about Jesus? Have you ever felt that way? I'm banking everything on Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Maybe I'm the only one of my close friends that believes in Jesus. And then you look at your life and you look at how you feel and you look at your experience and you wonder, have I been wrong about Jesus? We of all people need this passage. But here's our advantage. We get to know that we're in between the first arrival and the second. And both are described in this passage. Okay? Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This comes after a description of God leveling a forest. It represents leveling the enemies of God, the Assyrians. And he likens them to cutting down trees. And then he says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, 
just as we have prayed before on these bright fall mornings, as the sun is streaming into this room, would you cause it to do so, uh, shed your light on the Word. And we want to hear it, we want to understand it, but things about us get in the way, distractions get in the way, fatigue gets in the way, sadness. Please shed light on your Word. Please shed light uh, into us about uh, how we need this. Let us hear you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. About a year ago, my family went to the Georgia Aquarium down in Atlanta, if you've never been. Strongly recommended. Amazing. Uh, amazing what God has put into the oceans of the earth. We, uh, we toured the whole aquarium, and then at the end of our day there, we went to the, to the dolphin show. And it's, it's amazing. Um, it's, it's, you know, you've got these big, 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 clear, I don't know what it is, plexiglass or something, um, clear walls, and you watch these dolphins do amazing things. So we, uh, we loved it, and the crowd loved it, but at the end of the show, after these dolphins have done all these things, and some of you have seen this, at the end, right before it's over, the dolphins circle back out, and they swim up to the wall, and they inverted so that their nose down, and they put their tails up out of the water over the edge, and they waved goodbye to us with their tails. And you just kind of heard the whole room go, and so we, uh, we clapped, and then we, we left, and uh, we're walking to the car, and Dana and I start talking about it, and it was one of those moments where you're saying to someone, did you, did you, did you feel that? And what Dana and I began to, to admit to each other is that on that part in particular, where the dolphins waved goodbye to us, I said, did you almost start crying? And she said, yes, I did. And I said, I, I almost did. Uh, and we, we just, walking back to the car, we talked about this. Why did we, th- it was just hit us. It was almost that feeling like when you watch the Folgers commercial during Christmas, you know. And now they're even worse because it's like a guy coming home from Afghanistan and he surprises his family. And you feel it coming on like, no, 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 no. Not going to cry this year. Done that before. That kind of fit. Why did it strike us that way? And, uh, you know, not to over-spiritualize it or, or theologize it, but it really was like a little moment of a, of a world with no curse. Where that thing between men and animal, where, you know, maybe, maybe I can train you, but we're not really, we're not really in sync. Uh, that it, that it was like a creation where everything was happy for, for just a second. Um, it's interesting to me how many movies that we love in that way. I remember in the 90s when, t- when Titanic came out, and uh, I remember this, uh, one of the college students I worked with, he said, yeah, at the end they all go to Titanic heaven. You know, because at the end, after all these people have died and the ship has gone down, there's this vision of all these people alive together and had people that you knew perished, and, and you see them there. And, you know, after I saw it, because I had not seen the movie when he said that, after I saw it, I thought, yeah, yeah, they did go to Titanic heaven, and that's exactly what you want to happen. You, you want a glimpse of a world where the, the problems are gone, the curse is gone. This text is, um, is a picture of a world with problems, 
and of a world without problems. Why, why is that so timely? I mean, think about where we are now. We are now solidly in the holiday season. And pretty much everybody in this room has a mental picture of what they want their holidays to be like. I mean, you're working toward a day or a moment where you want this day, you know, this room in your house, this meal, this moment, to look this certain way. And I can almost guarantee you that the mental picture that we have is a room where no one is sinning. When we know that's not right. You know, it's almost the mental picture of children who don't sin. Of children who can't be selfish. Um, of family who cannot squabble. Of people who cannot be selfish. And we're not in that world. And we know that we're not in that world. But we still have the mental picture because what? Because we long for it. And here's the amazing thing. This text, this prophecy of the Messiah, because we know from a New Testament vantage point that there's not just one arrival of the Messiah, there's two arrivals. It's describing both. John the Baptist didn't know that. We know that. So that's what I want to look at. Let's look at how does Isaiah 11 give you the first arrival of the Messiah and then the second. All right, let's start with the first arrival. What's the first thing it says? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And as we said, in chapter 10 at the end, you're coming off this image of God likening his enemies to a forest and leveling them so that there's only stumps left. Then he said, but there's going to be this other stump. And it's the stump of Jesse. Now, who is Jesse? Jesse is the father of David, as in King David, as in the best king that Israel ever had. But it's an interesting image. It's, okay, you've got this stump in the ground and something starts to grow from it because there's enough life there for this new shoot to come out. And here's the image. It doesn't say that it's going to come from David. It's going to come from Jesse. Why is that important? Because God's people at this point have already seen the descendants of David be crummy kings. David was the golden king, and he didn't end on a great note, and he did all kinds of things wrong, but his descendants were worse. And it's the image of there's going to be almost a going back, not to David, but going all the way back to Jesse. Take these these promises out of the palace and go all the way back to the humble beginnings of Jesse, who lived where? In Bethlehem. All right, what else do you learn? Verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, I don't know how that strikes you. But again, remember, we're in the Old Testament. When the Spirit of God comes upon someone, that's not just, I'm having a religious experience and I feel ecstatic and I feel close to God. When the Spirit of the Lord came on someone, it equipped that person to do things that he or she naturally couldn't do. It might be to craft things. It might be to go to a battle and become a warrior that naturally you wouldn't be able to be and to win. Uh, It could be being equipped and anointed to lead. Well, all right, this this king that's coming, who's going to come from the line of Jesse, the Spirit of the Lord's going to rest on him. What's that going to do for him, in him? Well, here's the description. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And what a great description. Um, Wisdom and understanding, when the Spirit comes on this man, 
He'll always understand. He'll understand the people. He'll understand the individual. He'll understand the times. He will have all wisdom. So he'll know what to do. But he'll also have power and might. In other words, he's not just somebody that knows a lot, but he has the ability to execute it. He has the ability to implement all this knowledge, all this understanding and wisdom. Well, okay, that could still be a pretty intimidating person. But what else does he have? He's godly. He fears the Lord. It says that his delight is... His, he enjoys, he delights in fearing the Lord. Um, and then look at the, the rest of the description. It just seems like this is a man that hits on all cylinders. Verse 3, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. I mean, if you lived in a monarchy, this description would make you cry, especially after the leaders they had had. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever, have you ever seen a movie and you just, that just, there's just some actor or actress and they just grab you? You just kind of almost like get a crush on them. Or uh, you hear some piece of music and you just, you just almost fall in love with the musician. And I've reached a point in my life where when I feel that, I don't feel, fall in love with other women, but you know what I mean. But, but, when, I, but when, I, when I see something like that or hear something like that, I almost feel like putting just this... this you know, all-encompassing message out to my friends. If you find out anything about this actor, do not tell me. All right, stay away from me with your People magazines and your Entertainment Tonight thing you just learned about them that's going to destroy my little delusional, awesome feeling about this person. And what God is describing in Isaiah is a king is going to come and you'll never have to do that. You'll never have to feel that way. And again, it's hard to convey this just to put a lot of history into a little bit of explanation, but the contrast that this would be with what Israel had experienced. First off, their own king at this point was Ahaz. And Ahaz was horrible and wicked. Talk about not delighting in the fear of the Lord. Who's the other contrast? It's the king that's going to come in and overwhelm them and take them into exile. And who is it? It's, it's the Assyrian king, Sennacherib. And believe me, if there's anyone that does not delight in the fear of the Lord, you know, he's not going to decide with equity for the meek of the earth. It's Sennacherib. But the promise is, God's going to send the king that, uh, that you want. So, you and I, having the New Testament, what do we see? Well, we open the New Testament... And what do we see? We get this angel coming to a woman still unmarried and saying, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. Even though you haven't known a man, you're going to have a son and he will sit on, what? The throne of his father David. And you read the Gospels and you watch this man. You don't get much about his childhood, but you watch him grow up and there comes a point where he sort of goes public as the Messiah. And what happens when he goes public? He is baptized by John the Baptist with water. But more importantly, he is baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes down and rests upon him. And even though he's always been the Son of God, he's different from that point on. Up to that point, 
he lived in Judea, and no one really noticed him that much. And from that point on, when he walks into a village, demons scream for fear. Why? Because he is the anointed messianic king. And everything that's described in the part that we read, he does. It says at the end of John chapter 2, for instance, when people kind of try to, um, what we would call glad hand with Jesus, kind of backslap with Jesus, he would not entrust himself to people that tried to do that because he knew what was in the heart of man. He wasn't deceived ever by appearances. Now, why, why is that important before we move on? Because I want to talk about the second arrival. Um, this is important for people who are not yet Christians. This is important for people who are Christians. A perennial struggle is inside of your own heart is to parse out Christianity and Christians. Now, we, we want to be realists, and we, we've got eyes in our head. We need to look around and ask ourselves, what am I like? Uh, what is downtown Presbyterian like? What is the Christian church in Greenville like? What's the American church like? And we need to call a spade a spade. But the trick is, don't let what you see determine your feelings about the Bible, the gospel, or Christianity. What should our feelings be harnessed to? Jesus. Jesus. Because believe me, if, if, if we look at, whether it's us looking at ourselves or us looking at downtown Presbyterian, we're going to be disappointed. But here's the trick is to say, all right, look at how the church, for instance, has mishandled women throughout history. Look at ways that the church has mishandled women in our day. Can you step back from that and say, how did Jesus of Nazareth treat women in the first century in a Judean context? He was... He was jaw-droppingly insightful and compassionate and loving. How does the church in our day treat the poor? Can you step back from that? Can we step back from that and say, we need to talk about that? How did Jesus treat the poor? If you want to see how we should feel about the Scriptures, how we should feel about this thing that we call Christianity... The trick is to look at the king at his first coming. And here's, here's what I'm pulling, putting in an appeal for. This, I, to some, I'm appealing for you to do this for the first time in your life. For some of you, I'm appealing to you to keep doing this after knowing about this stuff for decades. And that is to read the Gospels over and over and over and over. To read them and meditate on them, to hear them, to soak in them, until it begins to get in your heart, no man was ever like this man. No man ever spake like this man, as the centurion said. But that's the first arrival. That's the one we celebrate at Advent, right? Advent means arrival. But how does the text give you the second arrival? Um, Pick back up in verse 4. You know, you just got through saying, with righteousness he shall judge the poor. Decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And then it says this, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Now let's go back to John the Baptist for a second. When you read 
John the Baptist's sermons, at least the little bits of it that we have, when he's getting people ready for the Messiah, he would say things like, the axe is already laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to be cut down and burned with fire. He says that, but then you look at the ministry of Jesus, and you kind of think, his ministry doesn't seem like that. It doesn't seem like a cut trees down ministry. It doesn't seem like a burn the trees up with fire ministry. It doesn't seem like the winnowing fork is in his hand kind of ministry. But John the Baptist said, the Messiah is going to do that. And he was right. When would the Messiah do that? At the second arrival. At the second arrival. Think about this. We just read about Jesus, the Messiah, slaying the wicked with the breath of his mouth. Um, I bet everybody here, I suspect, loves Christmas music. You've got your thing you like to listen to, Charlie Brown Christmas or George Winston or or whatever. Uh, I love that. I love um, choral music, especially British choirs. They're amazing. And if if you get a collection of some British choir, like from a cathedral or one of the universities, and it's a Christmas album, an Advent album, probably one of the songs that will be on that album is Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. And I thought about that as I was looking at this text because it's regarded as an Advent hymn. Here's what the second stanza of Lo, He Comes says. Quote, Every eye shall now behold Him, robed in dreadful majesty. Those who set at naught and sold Him, pierced and nailed Him to the tree, Deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. And in some ways we would say, that's a strange lyric for a Christmas song. But what is it saying? It was a song harnessed to Old Testament prophecy of what will Messiah do when he comes. Not so much the first time, but what? The second time. The second arrival of the Messiah, on the one hand, for many, will be dreadful. Dreadful. And simultaneously, it will be wonderful. How do you see that in the text? Look in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Now catch that. Bears are not known for grazing. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And if there's any animal that's a carnivore, it's a lion, and now he's an herbivore. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What is this a picture of? It's a picture of earth. It's not some science fiction heaven city with see-through, you know, domes. It's earth unfallen. It's it's the withdrawal, the disappearance of of the curse. Um, This past week, we got to dog sit, a friend's dog. And I got to tell you, this dog may be the sweetest dog in North America. And most of Mexico. Uh, 
you know, this dog came into our house and, uh, and we knew she was sweet. But for all the world, she treated us like we had always been her owners that she loved. And I mean, just within a few hours of being there, you know, one of us would be sitting in a chair and she would just come over and sort of like put her head up in our lap like, I love you and I always have. <laughs> this picture in Isaiah 11 is, and at some level this is horrific, but it's something like, you know, what if it's a wild boar? What if it's a rattlesnake? And it's coiled up beside you and it's just looking at you like, I, I love y'all. And I, I'm just glad to be with y'all. Just the, these animals that you know normally would just send a chill down our spine that we've always had a hostile relationship with. It's a picture of a world where all the hostility has gone away. Not just between man and animal, but between man and man. And more importantly, there's someone who's lifted up. Verse 10 speaks in terms of a signal. There's someone who's lifted up and all these different kinds of people gather around him and they see him and all these differences that they had, whether those were racial or socioeconomic, uh, even religious, they're gathered around him and they're one people. The earth is the way it should be and humanity is the way it should be. It's what we would call shalom. That's at the second arrival. But I want to ask you a question again. Um, and again, I think of the holidays. Even though you may know that... T- t- you may be here this morning, this is old hat. You, n- not one thing I've said has surprised you or taught you. But I would still ask us this question. Are we expecting second arrival scenes now? Um... Are we expecting a Christmas where no one fights? I'm not commending fighting. I'm not saying, isn't fighting great? I hate fighting. But are we expecting a Christmas where no one is selfish? Where everyone is in sync with each other? Where adults and children and parents are all on the same page about everything? That is a second arrival scene. We are not there yet. Maybe you're taking vacation time in December, the beginning of next year. And I was talking to some folks about this in the midweek Bible study a couple of weeks ago. You know, it seems like every other picture I see on a travel website is a picture of a pier over perfect water. And there's little little huts that are on the pier that stretch down. I don't even know what these are called. And in those pictures, it's just idyllic. The sky's blue and the water's blue and then the little huts and there's no one there, which may be the best part of it, you know. No one is there to mess up my fantasy. And I guarantee you, if you, if you sink the money to go actually stay in one of those huts, it's not going to be like that. Why? Because other people will be there. And what do all the other people share with us? They and we sin. And besides the fact that the sky might storm because it's a fallen world or there might be a typhoon because the earth is fallen, believe me, everyone there will manifest their fallenness. Are we expecting second arrival scenes now? Because the Bible never gives us a reason to do that. 
You don't get the second arrival until the second arrival. But I want you to think about this, just to, to wrap us up. This man, okay, 80s reference. It's been a while. 80s movie reference. This has been almost 30 years. I can't believe it. Do you remember the movie Places in the Heart with Sally Field? Okay, no. <laughs> Let me tell you about this great movie from the 80s um, called Places in the Heart. Now, it's set in the, it's set in the, in the deep south and uh, just the, the whole deal, rural and cotton farm and times are tough, the whole deal. <clears throat> the most famous scene in Places in the Heart is the last scene. And in this final scene, a man stands up and he reads the, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> and then he sits down and a choir starts singing, uh, I come to the garden. Now, you'd have to be from a church background to know that song. But, the, you know, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. But so as they're singing that, the church celebrates the Lord's Supper. And so the camera follows first the bread, and then it goes to the communion tray with the cups, and it starts following. And the first hands it goes into is the hands of an adulterer. And he hands it to his wife, who knows he's been an adulterer. And they commune together and they hold hands. And then the tray keeps going. And what you start to realize is, as it's following the tray, there are people in the congregation that were not there when you originally saw the shot of the congregation. Um, You see Sally Field hand the tray to her husband who had been killed. He hands the tray to the boy that killed him. Um, When Roger Ebert reviewed that movie 30 years ago, he said that movie is not strong enough to back that final scene. Now, that's interesting. He said that the storyline and the narrative was not strong enough to back how powerful that last scene is. I'm not here to argue whether or not that's right. Here's what I want to say. If you've got a scene where everything is right at the end, you better have a powerful narrative. That's what the biblical story is. You know, we preached through Mark this fall, and we got to Advent, and so I didn't do the resurrection this Sunday. I thought, if I do Easter and Christmas at the same time, our heads will blow up. (laughs) Believe me, there's going to be more coming about that. But could we pause and say, how do I know that the wolf and the lamb can be friends? How do I know that a child can play by the cobra's nest? How do I know that all sin will be dealt with? How do I know that I will have the shalom that I crave? The first fruit of the reality of all those claims is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the money in the bank that this is not a pipe dream, that at the second coming, He makes all things new. Right now we live between the comings, between the arrivals, meaning... We have forgiveness, we have redemption, we are adopted by the Father, and we are indwelt by the Son, but we're not in the new earth yet. And occasionally we have to look at each other and say, you know what, we're not home yet, but we're going to be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Our Father and our God, thank you that you will bring your people home, not because we deserve to go home, not because we deserve for it to be our home, but because Jesus deserves all good things. And through his life and death and resurrection, we are co-heirs with him. And so what he has, what he receives, we will have and we will receive. Our Father, um, during the holidays, we pray that you would help us to be hopeful realists. Very realistic, but very hopeful. That we'll be merciful with each other as a church. That we'll be merciful with our families. That we'll go after our neighbors, not as projects, but as neighbors, people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.